Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Hello again and welcome to the final day of the Bible readings at Bank Worldwide. It's been a real joy to have you join with us and it's been great to have Gary Miller sharing from First Thessalonians, living in light of the Lord's return. Can I encourage you, if you've been blessed and encouraged by this, to consider a giving towards uh, Gary's ministry and you can do that on Bank Worldwide um, website and also to consider becoming a friend of Bangor Worldwide as well. There's lots of details there. So over to Gary now, he's going to conclude First Thessalonians for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now as we come to the end of this letter that you'd underline what you've been teaching us, that you would uh, force this message deeper into our hearts and minds, that it might actually produce in us real change and a desire to live faithfully for the Lord Jesus, come what may. For we pray this in his name. Amen. I went to school in the days of pointless punishments, which generally involved writing out the same sentence a very large number of times. So, for example, I once had to write out, I, John Gary Miller, must not cause other people's homework diaries to sail through the sky at the Wallace High School, Lisburn County Antrim, without good reason, 50 times. The hope was that through the act of endless repetition, somehow transformation would occur and lives would be reformed. That's why at one stage, 75 of us in my year once had to write, Rule 17 of the school rules out 100 times after some heinous act of rebellion against the educational machine. Rule 17 went like this. Pupils must act at all times, both inside and outside school, with courtesy and consideration and in a manner which brings credit to themselves and to the school. Given the fact that it was about uh, 41 years ago that I had to write those out, you've got to say writing something out a hundred times does actually have some effect. Now, from that moment, I could never be in any doubt of the fact that as soon as you pulled on your school uniform, it was assumed, even demanded, that you act in a certain way. We all knew the score, we knew the standards, we knew what we had to live up to. And so most of the time, at least, we got on with it. And that's the logic of 1 Thessalonians 5. The point is not, of course, that we all have to be good boys and girls lest we drag the reputation of some institution through the mud. But in the light of all that we've read in 1 Thessalonians 1-4, to in the light of the fact that we've been called by God and rescued and been forgiven and been called to be holy and be declared to be holy, that we are in the process of being transformed by Jesus Christ, our ruling and returning Lord and judge, in the light of all that, we really do need to live for Jesus. 
We need to live as people who are in Christ, who are being transformed by Christ, and who will enjoy life with God the Father, Son, and Spirit forever. We need to live in the light of his coming. And as we shall see, all this isn't particularly complex. It's just hard for people like us to pull off. Now, the structure of this section is really quite straightforward. It falls into two halves. In in 5 verses 1 to 11, Paul reminds us who we are and says, live in the light of his coming. In 5, 20 to 28, uh, as he closes the letter to his much-loved friends, he does so by reminding them one more time what it looks like to live faithfully in the glory of the light of his coming. So at one level, this will be a talk without surprises. Not much of a shock factor anywhere. There are no particular linguistic or even theological complexities to cause you to scratch your head. This part of the Bible is refreshingly, confrontingly, perhaps even painfully simple as it summarizes and sharpens all that God has said to us through this letter and I think sets us up admirably to move on after the worldwide this year to live in the light the coming of the Lord Jesus. So, hear the word of God. Paul starts off chapter 5 by acknowledging that when it comes to the return of the Lord Jesus, the Thessalonians really do know the score. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you've no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul often uses the technique of saying, of course, you already know that, to remind them of the thing that they already know. And in this case, the thing is the fact that Jesus will return suddenly when we least expect it. Jesus will come, but the timing of his coming will be a surprise. It was Jesus himself who said many times that he would come like a thief. Now, any thief worth his salt will only show up when he's convinced that no one is sitting waiting for him. And Paul once more picks up this image, but this time adds the idea that Jesus will return like a thief in the night probably to tie this picture in with the children of light, children of the day image that we'll come to in a moment. But actually, Paul doesn't just say that Jesus' return will be dramatically unanticipated. He says that the day of the Lord will come like this. Now, the day of the Lord is anticipated all through the Old Testament, and it always has the same basic character. It's final. It's the last act of history. It's the supreme act of judgment when God shows up to defeat his enemies and hold the entire cosmos accountable. It's the end of one era and also the beginning of a new age when we as God's people will enjoy life with him forever. And Paul loves talking about it. He calls it the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus Christ, sometimes just the day. And the Thessalonians, it seems, had heard him wax eloquent on this many times before which is why he says he has no need to mention the day of the Lord on which Christ will come to judge the living and the dead this one last time. So why does he mention that he's not going to mention it one last time? (laughs) I think it's because Paul knows that this is so hard to hold on to, actually so countercultural that he needs to keep reminding them at every given opportunity. One of the things that the the whole COVID-19 pandemic has done is slightly shaken our complacency. Life for many of us is is so comfortable. Uh, I live in a part of the world where the tourist slogan is beautiful one day, perfect the next. 
One of the challenges in, ta in taking the gospel to Queensland is that life here is just so good and comfortable. We're now in the middle of winter today. It was the coldest day in Brisbane for years when it dropped down to 10 degrees. But you don't have to live in a subtropical city to know what comfort looks like. For many people in Northern Ireland, their existence is very comfortable, very secure. And whilst I would love it to be different, I do su suspect that after COVID-19 that we will return to normality much more quickly than is good for us. But the Thessalonians lived with a similar kind of attitude. Look at verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security. Peace and security was a really common Roman slogan. The Romans did have some serious flaws, but they were very good at fixing the roads and keeping the barbarians at bay. And they were very proud of it. Coins, the portable billboards of the ancient world, were minted bearing things like the peace of Augustus, the security of Augustus. Monuments were erected celebrating the peace and security won for the empire by the latest ruler. Peace and security is everywhere on inscriptions and manuscripts. No, no doubt someone will one day dig up the peace and security mug, coaster and tea towel. Everyone was saying peace and security. But this deadly apathy, as Calvin called it, will not last. Then sudden destruction will come on them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, I have very limited experience of pregnancy or labor pains other than as a spectator. But one doesn't have to have been pregnant to get the drift of Paul's metaphor. Labor pains are unwelcome, inevitable if you're pregnant, and they often come on suddenly. My sister-in-law was convinced she was suffering from a lack of fiber in her diet before she gave birth to twins. We had another friend who was so blasé about bringing number three into the world that she ended up delivering in the ambulance halfway to the hospital. See, there is a certain unpredictability about the timing, but sooner or later it's going to happen. The child will be born. We need to remember that. Because we sit in a parallel position. And it will be desperately bad news for people who do not know Christ if they are caught by this unawares. There are no more chilling words in the Bible than these. They will not escape. Paul uses the strongest possible negative expression to underline the fact that there can be absolutely no escape for those who reject Christ. The most awkward, most politically incorrect, most embarrassing, most pressing truth in the Bible is this. Those who reject Jesus Christ will not only be separated from God, but they will face his pure wrath forever. This is what Jesus taught. This is what Paul taught. From the earliest days of the church, this has been the orthodox view. This is the plain teaching of the Bible. And if we're to be faithful in communicating the gospel, sooner or later, the penny will drop for those to whom we're speaking that this is what we're saying. Paul says, you know the score. You know how much is riding on this. Don't lose sight of the suddenness and awful reality of the coming judgment. I do a fair amount of traveling, or did at least, before COVID-19 hit. But I also have a long and embarrassing record of crying when I watch really bad movies on planes. It's okay when the cabin's dark, but during daytime it's a bit embarrassing. 
So I've cried at parents losing children, children losing parents, athletes overcoming all odds to win gold, and even at gang members bonding with their basketball coach and leaving crime behind to win a national championship. These things make me cry on planes. But I do have to ask myself, when was the last time I wept at the thought of people I know who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, who as things stand will not escape the coming wrath? What about you? Are we people who weep like Jesus? Perhaps we need God to soften our hearts to this and to sear this reality into our consciousness so that it shapes the way we live and speak and pray and mourn because this is the way it is. And we all know that. See, it's against this bleak and terrible background that Paul reintroduces the fact that we are children of the light. Verse 4, But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. The background to this expression is almost certainly Jesus' statement in John 12, 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Language which in turn depends on Isaiah 60. Jesus, the promised light, comes, and those who receive him become children of light and children of the day. That's how this light imagery works. So what does it mean to be children of the light or of the day? Well, John explains it like this in in his first letter. 1 John 1 verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The picture's pretty simple. If we're children of the light, there is no guile, no pretense, no duplicity, no hypocrisy in sight. Just openness and wholesomeness and wholeheartedness. See, when God works through the gospel, he shines a moral and theological light into our lives. We get to know him and we get to know ourselves and we get to know the gap between us. We see God and sin and ourselves clearly for the first time. The light is piercing, exposing our guilt and shame. And at one level, once the light is switched on, we know that the game is up. Pretense is excluded. We're we're unmasked, exposed in the harsh, fluorescent light of truth. But the glorious thing is, of course, that Jesus Christ died not just to expose our pretense, but to deal with it, to bring our dark secrets out into the light, whether shocking and dramatic or subtle and sneaky. You see, there is nothing that the light will show up that Jesus hasn't already dealt with. Our failures, our social maneuvering, our secret contempt and lust. Jesus died to deal with every skeleton in the cupboard of our minds and hearts, And so his light enables us to hold our heads high and say, yes, that was me. But I have been forgiven and accepted and set free and made holy. And even now I am being changed. And that means that for us as children of the light, openness and vulnerability and a winsome freedom are there for us. Yes, our inner Pharisee and the evil one will say, far better to hide the truth, to protest your innocence. But there is no need. So is this a reality for you? 
Is it a reality for me today? Am I living in the glorious freedom that comes with being a child of the light? As Calvin said, we haven't been enlightened for the purpose of walking in darkness. So we know the score. Judgment is coming. We know who we are, children of the light. So it's hardly a surprise where Paul goes next. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let's be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This point's pretty clear. We're to be alert and self-controlled, perfectly poised, balanced, ready to act, neither apathetic nor preoccupied, focused but not panicking. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Sleeping all day is not normal. Getting drunk during the day is generally not admired either, even today. I'll never forget Fiona taking me to the Emirates football ground in London for my 40th birthday to watch my beloved Man United play Arsenal. She even had the presence of mind to get tickets at the away end. But as I think back on that day, I can remember the game vividly, but I can only remember one other supporter. The guy sitting in front of us had got on a coach in Manchester at 7am and obviously started dining beers straight away. By the time the game kicked off at 12.45, he was completely out of it. As soon as the whistle blew at the start of the match, he slumped down in his seat in a drunken stupor. His mates woke him briefly at, ha- at half-time before he started snoring again before the players came back on the pitch, only waking up when the game was over. That's the kind of thing Paul's warning us against, a spiritual life that's so lackluster, so oblivious to what's going on around us that we might as well be asleep or drunk or both. But we belong to the day. That means we're already equipped to live for God. Look at verse 8 again. Since we belong to the day, let's be sober, having put on the the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul often draws on the description of God's own armor in Isaiah 59, verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself as a cloak. And when Paul speaks about this armor, it's always in the context of staying alert. That's the case in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, the most famous armor passage in the New Testament, and also in Romans 13, which is the closest parallel to our passage. There Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let's cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness or sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." See, putting on this armor amounts to making wise choices which will make it easier for us not to sin. Years ago, I heard a story about her mum uh, telling her son Jimmy that he was to come straight home from school. And under no circumstances was he to go swimming in the pond on the way home. The end of school came and went. And there was no sign of Jimmy. So his mum went looking for him. And sure enough, there he was swimming in the pond. I'm so sorry, mum, he said. It was just so hot and the water was so cool. I wanted to come home, but I was tempted. His mum was swayed for a moment. 
and then thought and looked her son in the eye. So how come you had your swimming trunks with you? Oh, that's easy, said Jimmy. I brought my swimming togs just in case I was tempted. See, that's making provision for the flesh. But instead, we need to remember that we're already protected, that we have on the breastplate of faith and love. We have for a helmet the hope of salvation. Paul's language here is a bit unusual. He weaves his three favorite three-word summary of what God asks of us, faith, hope, and love, into this armor. Faith and love become a double-strength breastplate, and hope takes pride of place on our heads. Paul has come back to this repeatedly in this letter. The Christian life is basically a matter of trusting Jesus in the present, loving each other, and looking forward to his return. Here, of course, the emphasis is on hanging in there under pressure as we wait for his return. There may well be some significance in the fact that the double command with which this section opens, stay awake, be poised, be ready, be balanced, gives way to the single repeated command to be sober, stay awake. It seems that the Thessalonians didn't seem to have much problem in holding on to the truth of the fact that Jesus Christ would return in judgment. The problem is they seem to lose their grip on it very quickly, to be knocked off course and start living in a way which doesn't fit with what they believe to be true. See, it may well be that the people who made life so difficult for Paul during his visit to Thessalonica uh, had now turned his attention or their attention on the local Christians, and they were panicking. Or they may have been sucked in far too easily by weird and wacky eschatological schemes describing in great detail what was going to happen in future in a way that didn't fit with the Bible. But either way, the emphasis falls very firmly on their being steady, keeping going. It's not very sexy, but boy, is it important. The longer I follow Jesus, the more impressed I am when people keep going the more encouraged I am when I meet old friends like some of you and see that 20 years on, since we left Bangor, you're still following Jesus and so am I. But you see, it's this simple thing, following Jesus, that is the real deal, the mark of the genuine believer. It's what we should be aiming for to keep going and keep growing to the end as we live in the light of his coming. I suspect that is one of the great challenges facing us right now. What does it mean for us today to live as children of the light? Where are the lines to be drawn between light and darkness? How are we going to live in a way which is clearly different from everyone else around? How are we going to keep going in a society which is rapidly becoming more hostile to the gospel? Now, at one level, there is no need to panic. God cannot be outflanked. The church of the Lord Jesus has already negotiated all kinds of tyrannies and philosophies and hostility and apathy before. But there is also a sense in which we need to get our act together. How are we going to live in a world of radical tolerance and information overload and relational breakdown, a world in which everything is trivialized and no subject too sensitive for a reality TV show? A world where we instinctively grab for our phones in every lull in the action. A world where no dissent is tolerated from a set of media-defined sexual norms. How are we going to cope? How are we going to be different in the middle of all this? Well, we need to realize who we are and refuse to be tranquilized or compromised. Uh, 
We need to realize that we are different and that God calls us to keep going as we live in the light of his coming. In verses 9 to 11, Paul goes around this circle one more time by reminding us that God has given us real life and we would be dumb to swap that for anything else. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, whether we live or die, we might live with him. The harsh truth is that because of our sin and rebellion, human beings like us are caught in the most dreadful of traps. We're standing toe-to-toe with a God who is purely, justifiably, sinlessly angry with us. We've committed treason. And what has God done? He sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. The incredible truth is that we stand today amongst the rescued because God has dealt with his own wrath by substituting himself for us. I know that this doctrine, often called the doctrine of penal substitution, is sometimes proven controversial. But there really is no other option if we want to be true to the text of Scripture. We have provoked God's righteous anger. But Jesus Christ died for us so that whether we live or die, we might live with him. God has intervened through Jesus' death, and the fact that only his death makes the point that some people today try to, not, try to deny that Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God by his death as a substitute in our place so that we might both acquire and enjoy his salvation so that we might right now be caught up in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ and continue to revel in that life with him and the Father and the Spirit forever. See, this is why no one can actually take our life away from us, even if they kill us. This is why we can grieve as those who who do have hope rather than as those who have none. This is why the wrath of God holds no terrors for us. It's because today we are really permanently, gloriously, finally alive in Christ. I wonder if you're feeling alive today whether or not you've had your first or second coffee, do you feel robustly, energetically, permanently, life-changingly alive? That's how we should feel, because that's who we are. That's what's true of us. Back in Jeremiah 24, God had said, I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I'll build them up and not tear them down. I'll plant them and not pluck them up. I'll give them a heart to know that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Now in the light of God's stunning fulfillment of that promise, we're to encourage one another, as at the end of chapter 4, and build one another up one-on-one, just as you are doing. The phrase one-on-one is omitted in most English translations, but it is there. It's not just one another. Paul has in mind the constant chain of interactions where we remind each other that we're alive in Christ and push, push each other to live in the light of that, to say to each other every time we're together, we know the score, we know what's at stake here, we are children of the light, let's live like it. We're alive, let's press on together. See, sharing life together is the engine of the Christian church. 
I know we haven't always done it well. I know we're not always set up for it, but we desperately need to take this seriously. But it, because it is by sharing life together in the gospel that we strengthen each other, that we build each other up. And it happens when we're all together, but it also happens at an individual level through a constant stream of one-to-one -one interactions. You see, whether it's when we gather as God's people on Sundays, uh, whether it's we, we read the Bible in small groups, whether we read the Bible as individuals, every time it should spark off a set of interactions that defy logic as we speak into each other's lives across ages and experience and personality types and ethnic origin, as we remind each other of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's as we're reminded of the gospel that we are moved then to live in the light of his coming. This is how God has set things up to enable us to stand firm together. That's what Paul urges us to in verses 12 to 28. Now, this final section of the letter is quickfire and wide-ranging. And it would be easy to think that this is just the Apostle Paul getting a pile of things off his chest as he gets to the end of his piece of parchment, writing smaller and smaller as he tries to fit it all in. But that's not how it is at all. This is a carefully crafted expression of Paul's longing that the Thessalonian Christians grow together in Christ-likeness, learning to shape their life together so that they can stand firm together, living in the light of his coming in the peace of God himself. See, here's how to love each other. Here's how to build each other up. Here's how to live faithfully for the Lord Jesus until he returns. Let me just point out to you four simple steps to standing firm together that Paul highlights and we're done. Step one, verses 12 to 13, respect your leaders. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. For the first of five times in this section, Paul calls on his brothers and sisters to listen to him and take on board his instruction. Hear that they know they recognize and acknowledge their leaders. Now, local church leaders are here described in three ways. Those who labor among you, those who are over you in the Lord, and those who admonish you. His point is basically love and honor your leaders. But in making that point, Paul says some telling things about church leaders. They've got to work hard. Here and in 1 Timothy 5 and 2 Timothy 2, Paul insists that elders... Overseers, local church leaders have to be workers. They have to work hard as they seek to teach the Bible at every opportunity and in every situation. They have to work hard as they get to know people and, and love people and care for them. And they have to work hard as they're the first to get there and the last to go home. Now, why does Paul make such a big deal of, of working hard? Well, he makes a big deal of it because if you don't work hard, then people won't respect you. It's that simple. Leaders labor. They also stand in front of you in the Lord. That's what Paul literally says. Leaders operate in the sphere of Jesus' own authority, both equipped by Jesus on the one hand and answerable to Jesus on the other, which is clearly massively important, not least because leaders have the job of admonishing us. It's quite striking, isn't it, that the two functional things Paul says about leaders here is that they work hard and that they're prepared to say things that nobody wants to hear. That's why Christian leadership can often be a fairly thankless task. 
It promises long hours and numerous hard conversations. That's why it's costly to be a leader. Admonishing people is really hard. It's tough to work out when to speak and when to shut up. But even when you do it wisely and graciously, even when people take godly admonishment well, even when they grow as the result, there's often a relational cost. Because even where people are glad that you've loved them enough to challenge them, their relationship with you may change as they withdraw, feeling slightly embarrassed or even ashamed that we've seen through them. But if we're leaders, that's the role God calls us to. Admonishing, you see, is the sharp end of gospel application. And for Paul, it's absolutely fundamental to the life of the church as we speak the gospel into each other's lives. And particularly as those whom God has appointed to care for us speak the truth to us even when we don't really want to hear it. James Denny sums it up beautifully like this. Nothing is more truly Christian than frank and affectionate admonishing of those who are going astray. We're too much afraid of giving offence and too little afraid of allowing sin to run its course. If you are a leader, do try not to duck this responsibility. Yeah, there are some of us who like admonishing people far too much and our zeal needs to be reined in by the grace of the Lord Jesus. But I suspect that there are far more of us who will do anything to avoid these kind of gospel-saturated hard conversations. But we must have them if we're leaders. To do it slowly and thoughtfully, having prayed it through, to do it in a way that is saturated with grace, because that's what it means to be a leader. And after having painted this picture of the hard-working leader who takes his responsibility seriously before God and does everything in his power to apply the gospel to the life of the church family of which he's part, Paul says, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So do we? Do you? Think specifically of the leaders who have authority over you and the Lord right now. Do you appreciate them, respect them, love them in Christ? And of course, in the Bible, love is never merely secret affection. It's expressed. Do you honor them in love? Uh, Here in Australia, we're absolutely rubbish at that. The tall poppy syndrome that's all over the place in our culture even affects the church. But I'm not sure it's all that different uh, back in Northern Ireland. So can I encourage you, as I encourage myself, to be part of shaping a different culture, a more positive, more grace-filled, gospel-shaped culture, culture, where leaders are honored and encouraged for the right thing as forgiven sinners like us who work hard, who love enough to speak a tough gospel-shaped word, and who stand in front of us in the Lord. For according to Paul, this is the way to be at peace among yourselves. At first glance, it seems that It's a strange conclusion to the section. Honor your leaders, be at peace among yourselves. But actually, there's a really obvious connection. Sometimes we speak of leaders as if we need men with a certain kind of restlessness and drive ready to do anything and go anywhere for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. But that's not the whole story. For we also need leaders who know that they and we can do nothing without Christ, who have nothing apart from Christ, Leaders who admit that they can't fix things and aren't the solution to every problem and that together we're all dependent on Christ because only then when we're relying on Christ together can we know this peace. 
Only then can we be at peace among our, in ourselves. Paul says, love, respect, esteem your leaders because this is the way to be at peace in and among yourselves as together we acknowledge that only God can build his church. That's the first step to standing firm. The second, verses 14 to 15, do good to each other. Here's what love looks like. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. We'll come back to that in a moment. Encourage the faint-hearted, literally the small of soul. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Here's a very New Testament picture of the local church. Messy, broken, and difficult. The word translated idle here occurs only here in the New Testament. It literally means disordered or disruptive. And these disruptive people are admonished as together we continue the kinds of conversations that are characteristic of leaders as we speak the gospel into each other's lives, warning and gently rebuking where we're being ungodly or sinful. If we're faint-hearted, struggling to find courage and strength to press on with Jesus, then we need the encouragement that comes from being reminded of the gospel in real time in the middle of the mess of life. If we're weak and about to fall over, then we need help. We need people to walk with us, taking some of the strain for us as they point us back to Jesus and the gospel. Now, the challenge, of course, is working out who's who and who needs a gospel shaped kick up the backside, who needs a gentle word and who needs the chance to lean on us to keep going. Love takes a different shape with every person. But Paul then adds something which should mark all our dealings with one another. At one level, we're to treat each other differently, but at another, we're to treat everyone in exactly the same way, with patience. Hard though it is for me to say, impatience is the very antithesis of love. To love someone is to put them first. To be impatient is to resent the fact that someone is putting you out. Jerry Bridges, in his marvelous book, Respectable Sins, defines impatience as a strong sense of annoyance at the usually unintentional failures and faults of others. I think that comes pretty close. It's annoyance that you're taking up my precious time when I have to do, when what I have to do or what I want to do is so much more important to me than whatever it is you want. But the power and beauty of the gospel is that it blows us away with the fact that God has not treated us as our sins deserve and frees us up to put other people first. No matter how long it takes, no matter what it demands of us. So whether we're dealing with wrong-headed people or half-hearted people or head-wrecking people, the gospel both demands and enables us to treat them with patience for this is what it means to love one another. Paul continues in this note in verse 15. See to it that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See, revenge comes naturally. It seems right and just. It often feels right. And Paul says, don't do it. There are a couple of reasons. First, it's because revenge doesn't actually deliver the peace that it promises. Revenge doesn't actually bring closure. But the other reason is that there is no more powerful commendation of the gospel than refusing to seek revenge, but doing good to each other. And then Paul adds to everyone. Paul spells this out in a bit more detail in Romans 12. Romans 12, 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, this is the gospel-shaped life. A life which stands out because not only do we respect our leaders, but we actually do good. We love other people, whether they're in the church or outside it. That's the second step to peace. The third, verses 16 to 22, we press on together. Paul here gathers eight commands together as he urges the church family to live for Christ together, come what may. The positives come in verses 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. They're to rejoice all the time because Christ's death and resurrection have changed everything and he'll return to rule his everlasting kingdom. They're to pray, asking God to continue to work through the gospel to bring all things together under the rule of Christ. And they're to give thanks, knowing that whatever happens to them can only result in their growth in godliness and more glory for the Lord Jesus. See, this is a radically different way of looking at the world. And it must have come as a shock not just to the Thessalonians, but to every first century reader. Rejoicing all the time, praying all the time, giving thanks when stuff goes wrong because of some grand scheme. Nobody had ever said anything like this before. That's because Jesus' death and resurrection really do change everything. Paul knows that when we get the gospel, it radically recalibrates the way we look at everything. See, through the gospel, the Spirit reorders our priorities. He, he rearranges our desires. He reawakens our joys. Through the gospel, the Spirit works on our reactions and our prayers and our priorities. We're refashioned and increasingly conformed to the perfect humanity of Jesus himself. See, together we're caught up in this massive change project. It's the main thing, the great goal of our lives, which is why Paul adds five more commands in 19 to 22. Two negative, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians to be gullible. He desperately cares that they're not blown off course by bad doctrine. I would all say a hearty amen to that, but nor does he want them to become cynical. So he urges them not to become so doctrinally preoccupied that they forget the fact that God's truth is designed to lead us into knowing him and loving him. No less than John Calvin said, there is no greater danger than the pedantry that makes every doctrine stale. So yes, we must test everything, but we must not despise prophecies, which brings us to one of the great puzzles in the New Testament. What exactly is prophecy here? Well, here's what we know for certain. One, in the early church, prophecy was a key part of their life together and showing disdain for prophecy was a bad thing. Second, prophecy was designed to build up the church. Third, it had to be biblical. It had to fit in with what had already been revealed in the Old Testament scriptures and the emerging New Testament scriptures. Four, it had to be tested by the elders And so it was different from the Old Testament, thus says the Lord, kind of prophecy, which was tested by no one. And then fifthly, after the early days of the church, it appears to die out, which led most people for most of Christian history to assume that prophecy has been replaced by Scripture. 
So what is it? Preaching? Some kind of word of knowledge, interpreted tongues, speaking the gospel into someone's life at exactly the right moment? The trouble is there's not much material to go on in the New Testament, and different meanings appear to fit different contexts. Plus, there is the brute fact that whatever we say, it disappeared for about 1,700 years, and that makes it very difficult to work out how we're to avoid despising it when we don't really know with any certainty what it is. So what are we supposed to do with this command? Don't despise prophecies. Let me make three suggestions, then we'll move on. First, let's make sure that we expect God to speak clearly and powerfully, even prophetically, through his word, week by week. Second, let's remember that God works through all of us speaking the gospel into each other's lives, prophetically, if you like. And thirdly, let's be humble enough to admit what we don't know. So let's test everything, making sure we hold fast what's good, abstaining from every form of evil. It's not just a matter of standing back and coldly assessing what's good and what's true and what isn't. We need to commit, throwing ourselves into pressing on together. That's step three. And the last one, look to God to do what he's promised. Five verses 23 to 24 appropriately sum up the whole message of this letter. Now may the God himself, that may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Paul says, look to God to do what he has promised, to create in you the very desires of Jesus Christ himself, to clean you up thoroughly on the inside, to make you holy so that when the Lord Jesus returns, you'll have nothing to worry about. The only one who can give you peace will make you holy, putting your mind at rest and set you, setting you up to enjoy the beautiful life, life with God forever. This is the only place in the, in the Bible where our persona is described as having three parts, body, soul, and spirit. I think Paul is just piling up terms to show that the totality of who we are is transformed by God. Paul says God is changing every single bit of us. And picking up on Isaiah 49, verse 7, he's in absolutely no doubt that God can and will do it. I have to confess, I very seldom doubt that I belong to Jesus. I've been following him now for, well, about 40 years. I believe very firmly that I am his and he will not let me go. But I do struggle sometimes with the lack of change in me. Sometimes I despair of my propensity to sin in the same ways over and over again. Sometimes I've made virtually no progress, it seems, in my Christian journey. Sometimes I wonder if my desires will ever match those of Jesus. If I lack assurance, it's because of a lack of change, as the voice of the evil one whispers in my ear, you fraud. Well, here is the gospel antidote to satanic whispers and self-piteous introspection. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Respect your leaders, love your enemies, press on together, look to God to do what he's promised. It's not all that complicated, but it's rich and challenging and gospel saturated like this whole letter itself, which is underlined one last time as Paul signs off. 
Look at verses 25 to 28. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. On the face of it, it looks like Paul's yours sincerely. He's just tagged on the end of the letter. But each of these key statements picks up one of the major themes in the letter, rams it home one more time. Pray for us. Paul really does believe that only the God of peace can make us like Jesus and enable us to live like Jesus as we put our faith in him. It's God who does all the heavy lifting in our lives by his spirit, through his word. And when we get that, it becomes the most urgent, natural thing in the world to ask God to do his work in us because only he can do it. Secondly, Paul says, we're in this together. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Okay, this was pre-COVID, I know. But there were little tensions in the church family. There always are. But Paul encourages the Thessalonians to show each other a sign of family love, a symbolic action which says we're in this together. Find a way of doing this that's appropriate in our culture. How do we do it? Well, who knows, post-COVID. You know, it used to be that in most families, the males greet the females with a kiss in the cheek. Blokes give an awkward, will we shake hands? No, we'll go for the strange one-armed hug. Oh, good, that's over greeting. But however we do it, we need to do it. We need to give each other a sign that we're in this together. Then Paul says, do what I tell you. And what's almost certainly his earliest surviving letter, he starts his habit of taking the pen and writing a line or two himself, this time to make sure this is read out to everyone, whether they might be offended or not, and encourages them all to act on it. And the last thing he says, do all this in the strength that Jesus supplies. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. It's this grace that enables us to do everything, not just that's in chapter 5, but in this whole letter. We are possessed and empowered by Jesus himself. We're his. We belong to the risen Lord who died for us, who brought us to life through the power of the Spirit, who will return and who will sanctify us completely. What more could anyone wish for? Having got to the end of 1 Thessalonians, I hope you can see it's about gratitude and motivation and joy and holiness and obedience and love. At the end of the day, it really is quite simple. It's all about what God has done for us and is doing in us and will do for us in the Lord Jesus by the power of the Spirit. So we've read it. Now let's live it in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's live in the light of his coming. Amen. Could be.
Thank you to everybody who has taken part today and again to Gary for bringing God's word to us so faithfully. Can I just remind you about the evening celebration tonight at half past seven and about the youth event at eight o'clock and then the Zoom after hours at nine o'clock. There's lots uh, to come today as we conclude Bang Worldwide 2020. Can I also encourage you to, uh, to keep connected uh, to us on our social media sites and also to consider becoming a friend of Bangor Wide for the years ahead. Let's just close our time in prayer. Father, we thank you that Christ is coming again. And we do indeed say, come, Lord Jesus. But Father, from today until he comes again, Father, would you help us to use our time well? Father, as we've heard your word opened up so clearly today, and in previous days. Father, help us not just to be hearers of your word today, but to be doers as well. Father, would you work in us through your grace to enable us to live out what you are teaching and calling us to do and to be. And Father, would we be salt and light in this our day and generation. Father, would we go and tell people across the road, across our town and across the world about the magnificent grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we do thank you for Gary and for all that he's brought to us this weekend. Father, I pray your continued blessing on him and his family and his uh, work with the Queensland Seminary. Father, I pray your blessing on all that he is doing in his church there and even as he writes, Father, would all that be used to 
glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.